welcome to a very special edition of Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and I am thrilled to have Linda Hogan joining me on this episode, Voice of the Spirit. Linda Hogan is a Chickasaw who has spent most of her life writing poetry, essays, and fiction, as well as being a strong activist for indigenous cultures. Linda is considered to be one of the most influential and proactive figures in the contemporary American landscape. And in 2007, Linda was inducted into the Chickasaw Nation Hall of Fame for her contributions to Indigenous literature. Her work includes Dwellings, A Spiritual History of the Living World, and Sightings, The Mysterious Journey of the Great Whale. Linda also wrote a script for the PBS documentary, Everything Has a Spirit. Linda joins me from her home in Colorado. So Linda, thank you for joining me on Nature Revisited. It is an honor to have you here, and I am thrilled to be able to share a part of your story with my listeners. It's wonderful to be here. I would like to start the interview by you sharing one of your poems, The Heron. The Heron. I am always watching the single heron at its place, alone, at water, its open eye, one leg lifted, or waiting without seeming to move. It is a mystery scene that never touched until this morning, when I lift it from its side, where it lays breathing. I know the beak could attack that unwavering golden eye seeing me, my own saying, I am harmless. But if I had that eye, nothing would be safe. The claws hold tight my hand, its dun brown feathers and the gray so perfectly laid down. The bird is more beautiful than my hand, skin, more graceful than my foot, my own dark eye, so much more vulnerable, the heart beating quickly, its own language. Speaking. You could kill me or help me. I know you, and I have no choice but to give myself up. And in whatever supremacy of this moment, hold your human hand with my bent claws. That is wonderful. Your whole life has been deeply engaged in the natural world, and through your poetry and writings, you have shared this deep relationship with nature 
with all of us. So let's start at the beginning. Your father was a Chickasaw and served in the U.S. Army. So I am thinking you moved around a lot. How did you come to learn about the richness and the wisdom of your indigenous background? In one way, I have to say I was born this way. Then I had the influence of many people. My uncle was probably the strongest influence, and later my father and I grew together. In the beginning, my uncle started as a, when I was a child, taking me to all of the events where Native people went back in those days. These were the late 40s, the 50s. During the 50s, there was a Relocation Act. That was a very devastating act for Native people. It was the removal of people from their own lands in the cities. A lot of the time, they were put on a bus and then just, that was it. They went to the city and then they were there to fend for themselves. My uncle created an organization, I would call it, where people coming into the Denver area, where he had already arrived, were given help by this group. They were given information about where to spend the night, where to eat, and to get jobs. That was always important to me, that he did that. He also from the time I was born, decided I was going to be a Chickasaw and I was going to be an indigenous person. So he took me to all of the events. That was largely Northern Plains. The elder women were very hard on me, <laughs> I have to say, because as a Chickasaw, I had very different ways than they did. I had to learn. I had to learn to live with different communities. As a traditionally-minded person, and I say that as a Native who follows tradition and follows Indigenous ways from the beginning, I became that by learning from not only many people, but also on my own, from being observational, from being a person who studied the world and studied books and studied life around me. I was always attentive and I've always worked with animals. When I looked back on it, I've always been an animal person. As I've gotten older, I'm also very interested in everything, plants, insects. I even like to study humans, as hard as that is. So in your work, you often express your relationship with animals and the language that they use. When did you first connect with animals and how did you come to understand them? Well, I've been connected with them all my life and I think I understand through compassion. I have a great amount of empathy and compassion, sometimes too much, so that it's painful. When I look back on it, all of my studies, all of my jobs, all of the things I've done as a volunteer have 
included animal life. I've worked with eagles, hawks, and owls. I've taken care of sick animals in my life. My father and I were going to go fishing, and we found a snake. It was a blue racer, and I took it to my home because I thought I would catch a big fish <laughs> with this big worm that I found. I didn't know the difference between a worm and a snake, I guess. My mother started screaming because I was carrying this snake. My intention was to take it back home. didn't turn out that way because of my mother's fear of it. It was a beautiful black racer. It didn't get to go home, and it bothered me greatly and still does. In most indigenous cultures, they use an oral tradition. What led you to choose the written word as your main way to express our relationship with the natural world? What fascinated you about language? The written word. Well, when I first read it, my first poem, I was in my mid-20s, and it was a contemporary poem, and the only things I'd ever read were poems from the 19th century that we had in school books. Those didn't do very much for me, but when I discovered contemporary poetry and I read my first poem, I was amazed at the way you could use words. I was amazed that they, you could be free with them. You didn't have to rhyme. You could just use words and then create something that happens that I call magic, that there's a heartbeat to it. The poem has a resonance and it comes alive. And so I started writing poetry. I just couldn't Stop. I would write on my lunch hour at work. I would write on all my weekends. Every time I had a chance, I started writing. And finally, I asked the teacher if I could sit in on their creative writing class. And then I had feedback from other people as well. I did essays. I did essays about animals and essays about the life where I lived. I lived in a little tiny town and in a hidden place there. And I wrote about the animals there. One of the poems was a, about a porcupine that had gotten hit by a car. And everybody knew the porcupine. They all had seen it. They had known it for years. Hated to see it pass on. We all participated in a project where people told what they did in town. I gave a reading. And I read that poem, and everybody started talking about the porcupine. And I thought, this is what it's for. This is why you do this writing, for everybody, not for just people in the literary world, but for everybody. So do you still embrace the oral traditions of indigenous cultures? And how important is that tradition? It seems like in our oral tradition, most of the stories are for children. A lot of people have teaching stories for children or for young adults. How you become a man, how you become a woman. There are stories that go with ceremonies. 
there are stories that are prayers and songs. So the oral tradition is really complex. It's a more powerful use of language, and it's one that is also sacred. So the idea of the oral tradition scans from that of telling children's stories to stories that have to do with healing, stories that have to do with growing, stories that are holy and sacred and not to be told in any place except for a ceremony. So, yes, I embrace it completely. I pay attention to all of the different ways language is used. In a lot of your books, you talk about the importance of origins and the connection to the land. Why are those two things so important? Well, we come from the land. Humans were the last to be created in almost all of the origin stories. The humans were created last, and Earth was created early. From the beginning, and no one knows what that beginning was, it's part of the great mystery, but from the beginning, all life, including butterflies, animals, everything, came before us. Earth is so important because we have to have it to live on. And if we treat the soil well, it will treat us well. We haven't treated it well. One of the things I wrote was about the great pain that people would have felt when they saw the settlers taking a plow to the earth and removing all of the foods and all of the things that were there that were important to their lives. You mentioned earlier ceremony. Why is ceremony so important in connecting us to the natural world and to ourselves? Well, it has to do with being in balance. Ceremony places people and the world back in balance with the universe and our place in it. Sometimes we humans forget our place in it. We think of only the I, the only the self, and not all of the rest of life, even other people. So ceremony is our way of putting together and making whole. And how important is it to you, to you personally, that you have a spiritual connection to the natural world, to wilderness? or wildness, I should say. How important is it to me? It's my whole life. And if I did not see the stars, if I did not see a sky, I wouldn't be the same person. If I didn't have the earth to walk on and to look at the wild plants and to to understand my own human place there and how small it is and how large the trees are and how beautiful and amazing they are with their growth and their undergrowth, what would I have? It breaks my heart to see trees go down 
And some people think that nothing is alive. To me, all of it is alive. That's a native view, I think. The native view is that all of it is alive. If I could change the focus just a little bit, uh, because I've always wondered about the role that feathers has played in indigenous traditions. How important are feathers and why are they so revered? That's such a hard question. And the answer is really hard because if you don't understand it, it's like trying to explain something that's really complex, but bringing a feather into a ceremony, an eagle feather or hawk feather, an owl feather, each one is important. The thing that's really significant is that it, it is the bird itself. It comes from the bird, it's a gift of the bird, and it is the bird itself. So when you have the presence of the feather, you have that presence with it. Why is the bird such a powerful image or animal in the indigenous traditions? Well, it's different in all of them. If you ask that question in South America, you get one answer and a different kind of bird. And if you ask that question in the far north, you would get water birds. Eagles are the highest flying and the most powerful, the better hunters, the most communal nesters. Some of the nests are so large that they have knocked trees over, and they go from tree to tree sometimes that large. Crows are not considered as sacred, but they are to me. I love the fact that thousands and thousands of crows may roost together and build a really large nest. They're very intelligent and interesting, but they're not as intelligent in the same way as an eagle. Each life has its own intelligence. And altogether, it makes for an entire, what I call terrestrial intelligence. And it includes ours, but it also includes that of the mountain lion, that of the birds, that of the fox, everything that lives. All indigenous cultures are different. Many cultures don't have a word for nature. Yet you are able to describe through your words a world and a wisdom that we don't have a language for with the language that we have. So how important are words? There were several parts to your question, and one was about words, that I think the words, words create emotion. And if they're used well, they create feeling that stays with a person or thoughts that they might not have had. And so that's the role of literature. That's the role of poetry for me. If there is no word for nature, it's because there is no separation of the human from the world. 
And so there doesn't need to be a word for nature. If we can work with everyone to make change, and people are wanting to make change, they just don't know how. And I think that writing changes people. I think that people create change that then it moves on and to other people. A lot of times when people feel hopeless, they forget that there is something that can be done. They just have to know what it is. It's being contagious right now that a lot of people are paying attention. So you've kind of answered my next question, which is, do you think that we are starting to understand and to listen to the wisdom of many of the indigenous people who live here and how they can help us move forward? There's so much interest. We indigenous people want to pass on the knowledge. Scientists are coming together with indigenous peoples to learn some of the knowledge. In particular, this begin with wildfires because they didn't have the kind of fires in the past that happen now. In California, for instance, when the tribal people lived in the national parks, and were driven out. They knew how to manage the forest. They knew how they lived in it. They lived with it. They were the forest. And now it's returning to that. And non-Indian people are interested. They want to know. Scientists want to know. They're asking questions. So how can someone who would like to learn more about how indigenous cultures and their wisdom can help show us a more natural path forward and show us our rightful place, where would you recommend someone who is not particularly familiar with them, how would you recommend they get started? I think that there are all kinds of starting points and that some of them are really important. And I think Bioneers, for me, that's one of the best. They have sessions on indigenous knowledge and are fairly steeped in tradition. You can look on pioneers online. Also, read indigenous writers. This is a country where they're more interested in reading about Indian people than by Indian people. All you have to do is look. Native literature, and there you go. You'll have hundreds and hundreds of books. So, Linda, before we conclude our conversation today, I would like for you to share another of your poems. I saw them dancing. I saw them dancing. They were not two males in a territorial battle but those lifting their legs and small hooves before bowing to one another in respect, ending their dance, then curling back down near each other around their young in the long spring grasses. I remember the bend in the road when I carried my woven basket of branches and saw the two does dance. 
It was the season of trees blooming after a rain. And in the ray of light, the last of day, were other inhabitants that carry only their beauty to shine this land. Each life says to the other, yes, you are an animal, you are a song, you are a runner, a flyer, you are so alive. We were all created together with this herd of twilight dancers, more than one. Then they went into the tangle of thicket. This woman can never follow. Thank you. The title of this episode on Nature Revisited is called Voice of the Spirit. Why is it so important that we all get in touch with the spirit? All I had to do was look outside and I'm in touch with the spirit of the world. But how many people are in touch with the spirit of themselves? That's a starting point. To go out, be quiet, let the world communicate, let, let it into your heart, let it into your, your own spirit. But we have to be in touch with ourselves, too. It doesn't work if you just go out walking with a friend. You have to pay attention to what's around you. I can't explain it, but the world speaks. It offers something to people. The environment has its own life, its own language. When you see an animal, there's something taking place there. It has a spirit. It's moving. There's something happening. And so everything is always, it's always alive. That's all spirit. We need this. We need it, and we need it in ourselves to be aware that it's, it has a spirit. And that spirit, you can connect with it. You can be it. You are part of it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Linda Hogan as much as I did. And I hope you will take the time to read some of her poetry, essays, or novels. You can learn more about Linda Hogan at lindahoganwriter.com. I hope you will share Nature Revisited with family, friends, and colleagues, and that you will follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or on our website, nordenproductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Tim Buckley, Buzz and Fly. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. <laughs>